0: one of the things about entrepreneurship. There is no reward without the risk. Every great entrepreneur had help. And where is that help going to come from? It's going to come from that social network. You don't have to be smarter than everybody else to make money doing asset allocation and saving. I think there's a danger when you're in business to find arrogance. And especially if you're doing really well. At the end of the day, I ain't nothing special. I'm just a guy. What has value? Well, what has value is whatever people say has value. I'm going to get better and better and better at what I do as I get older. So the best me is going to be the me right before I die. Hey, family. Welcome back to the Marketplace Podcast. I'm your host, Preece Willis. And on today's episode, I have a very special guest. Her name is Fawn Weaver. And Fawn is an investor, historian, relationship blogger, and author of several different books. And she's also an historian and co-founder of the Nearest Green Foundation. Now, many of you are familiar with Jack Daniels and the Jack Daniels story even. But many of you may not have heard of Nearest Green, who is actually the slave that taught Jack Daniels how to distill whiskey. It's an amazing story. She actually created a whiskey brand. It's called Uncle Nearest, and it's the fastest growing independent American spirit brand in history that happens to be run by a black woman who is Fawn Weaver. You know, I'm excited to share her story with you, to talk about all the things that she's doing And her business is a part of in being first, first for African-American women pushing the spirit business first for African-American women to work with large organizations or companies, if you will, like Jack Daniels. This is a special story, not because it's about black, not because it's about whiskey, but because it's American history. It's about legacy. And it shares a lot of layers to it. And as I've said many times before, there's a lot of layers to us. So I am excited to share this interview with you guys today. And without further ado, here is my guest, Fawn Weaver. Hey, Fawn, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you for having me, priest.
0: Yeah, excited to have you on. I've been looking forward to this interview. We were kind of laughing offline because we were starting to talk a little, little while back and things went off the rail because I was drinking a little bit of the juice. But We're (laughs) (laughs) going to get into the juice a little bit. But before before we do, why don't you tell us, tell the audience a little bit about yourself?
1: Absolutely. So I, well, let's see now I'm 43. So this goes back about 25 years. I have been an entrepreneur. I started my first company when I was 18 and made a whole lot of mistakes along the way, but I've, I've traditionally, and almost from the beginning stayed in the PR marketing lifestyle brands investment. It's, it's kind of always been in that space. And What we're talking about here today is Uncle Nearest and Nearest Green and and that really began about uh, three years ago in 2016. I was invested in a particular uh, chain of fitness studios and and, uh, just kind of moving around based on that and had gotten pretty frustrated with a particular situation within that investment. And so I did something that I almost never, ever, ever do, which is I went on vacation <laughs> just, just to get just to get away from it my husband is an executive vice president for for one of the big movie studios and he was needing to travel to singapore for something and i said hey i'm just going to hitch a ride and so i hitched a ride with him for his business trip which left me with 3 days open of doing nothing and when i say that never happens. I mean, that literally never happens for me. and But it was a beautiful thing because on the first day that we were there, we were sitting up in the uh, club lounge of the hotel and I pulled the New York Times International Edition. Now, the thing to know is is I don't actually read the New York Times when we're in the US. But anytime I'm traveling internationally, I always read it. Here I just, you know, get the recap of what uh, top five news stories of the day. I get that recap in the morning. That's all I need. I just can't even be bothered with everything else. I agree. And so if I had not been traveling internationally, I would have never seen this this article. And so on the cover of the International Edition, The article, there was a picture of Jack Daniel, whose face I was familiar with, sitting next to an African-American man. And the headline of the story was, Jack Daniels embraces a secret ingredient help from a slave. And I read it. Just the beginning lines of it, and literally my eyes were opening so wide that my husband, who's sitting across from me, looks at me and goes, What's wrong? (laughs) What's going on? Because immediately he thinks, Okay, something must have happened terrible in the US. And I flip around the newspaper and show it to him, and his eyes got just as big. And we, you know, when you are traveling, when you're traveling the world, you never, ever, ever really hear about african-americans unless there is you know one that's been shot by a cop in the u.s or that, that's generally it's either going to be a story like that or it's going to be if you know serena williams did something spectacular tiger woods did something spectacular that's that's really the only time you see us anywhere close to the front page and in any international edition so to have this sitting there it was mind-boggling for us and and so i got really interested it's it's what Keith calls my rabbit holes every weekend we take 24 hours off always we shut down our phones and and all the rest of that And and I dive into a rabbit hole for at least an hour of our 24 hours off which means I'll find something randomly that I had been I had seen during the week and I really wanted to dive into it more and I just didn't have time during the week so I this is what, this is what I do on my Sabbath. This, an hour of it is a rabbit hole. This, this rabbit hole I just did not come out of. And I just kept diving deeper and deeper because there were, there was nothing about this man. So you have this article that comes out. It's by the time I saw it in Singapore, i had been out in the U S for a couple of days and you have a nothing about this man who, according to the article, Taught the most famous American whiskey maker ever to this day. And there was literally nothing else about him online except for regurgitations of the New York Times article. So, you know, picked it up, this paper. And I'm thinking, how is that even possible that there's no information on this? So, what i decided is i said you know what i'm going to dig into it i'm going to see if this is possibly true however and this is something i learned early on in business when i got my butt kicked over a trademark i <laughs> is i actually will not dive into anything or even go close to venturing into any investment or anything of that nature whether it's of my time or money without making sure i can secure everything and by everything i mean trademarks online social what i call online real estate so that's social media handles websites that kind of thing and so the very first thing i did once i decided i want to dive into this and see where it goes is make sure i could secure all of that and so i'm doing all this in singapore my husband comes back at the end of his days wait meeting. you're doing He's the, like, you're doing, you doing the today? unfolding
0: and all that of the trademark still while in singapore
1: everything was in, i was in singapore it, it all happened Holy on the cow. same day okay it's, so because the thing is, is that when I went online, there literally was nothing about this man. And so my thought process was, well, of course, this is Jack Daniels would have taken the time, bef- at least if not before the the article came out immediately after to say, hey, we better lock up all these, these trademarks and online stuff or whatever. And nobody did it, it, at all. It had not, not been even Not even Jack I, Daniels, I
0: which is amazing.
1: Nothing literally no one had ever filed an application to trademark.
0: That's amazing.
1: At all. And so it's, I spent the entire day securing everything in advance of knowing, okay, I'm going to dive into this. And, and, and the reason, the reason why my mind went to that immediately is because I did a book back in, gosh, I don't remember what year it was, but this book called the happy wives club and and i grew this the the book itself was a new york times bestseller and a usa today bestseller but i also grew this online club of women all over the world and and it was a great it was a great thing but then i went to trademark it after the fact and someone else had a trademark called happy housewives now when i tell you the two organizations could not be more different I had like this group of powerful women, you know, all running the world. They just happen to love their spouses, June and then you have this Titan. other yes, with the whole <laughs> dress. Like I went online to the website, and I thought, well, surely the trademark, and you know, those who are reviewing this, there is absolutely no way that they would think that these are remotely the same. But now I know trademark law very well, and that's not how it works. They they're not actually allowed to look outside of their system. So to them, it was too close and they denied it. And so after that, I thought, well, I'm, I've helped to build this other person's enterprise. I will never do that again. And so once I knew I had everything secured, then I dove in. And when I went back to it, it was, I want to say maybe the next morning. And then all of a sudden there was a Wikipedia page that had popped up. And in that Wikipedia page, it was, again, a regurgitation of the New York Times article. However, it had a footnote that referenced a biography of Jack Daniel that was written in 1967 called Jack Daniel's Legacy. And so I ordered that book. And by the time we got home, of course, it was there. Because you got to love Amazon. God bless them. Uh, (laughs) You know, people get really mad at them and say they control too much. And I'm like, yeah, they do. While my (laughs) fifth package of the day is arriving. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That I just ordered the day before. So I I, I am not mad at it at all. And so I got home and, and the package was there. Now, understand, 1967, right? So this is a story that is happening in a small town in Tennessee called Lynchburg. Lynch Burke, right? So I am not expecting that the story is actually going to name Nearest Green by name, in part because by the time I got back home, and which was, I want to say, I don't remember how many days later, but by the time I got back home and opened the package, social media had taken this story and, and specifically what we call Black Twitter, uh, which is a lot yep. of African Americans on Twitter literally light it up whenever there is something that seems like an injustice. So if you look at the Paula Dean situation, who yep. took Paula Dean down was black Twitter. And so you had this social media uprising that from the time I read the story to the time I got, I, I opened the first pages of Jack Daniels legacy. It very quickly went away from the original New York times article to Jack was a slave owner. He stole the recipe he hid a slave did never gave him credit all the rest of this different stuff so by the time i started reading the biography i expected number one for near screen not to be mentioned by name i expected it to like reference a slave or a negro or something of that nature that someone on wikipedia just happened to say hey this is him right and i i understood that with the book being written in 1967 and the people who were interviewed for the book were Jack's descendants. He, he didn't have any children, but his nieces, his nephews, mostly, is who was interviewed. And his great nephews were interviewed. And then all of the people who worked with him, who knew him, Jack died early in his early 60s. And so there were a lot of people that were still living when this book was being written that actually had worked for him and that were friends with him. And so I read that on the opening pages of the biography and and expected, okay, well, it's going to mention there was a black man somewhere involved in this process. And early on to the book, we meet Uncle Nearest and we meet him because a preacher and a distiller who Jack went to work for as a young chore boy at about seven years old, he went to work for him because he's the 10th child, his mother died when he was four months old, his father immediately married again, which was very normal at that time, especially if you had 10 kids, you needed a woman to deal with it. And, And so you've got this little runt of a kid who never grows to be five foot two, even when he's fully grown and an old man. And so you've got this kid who, this stepmother just did not like. And so rather than being in that environment, he goes to the farm, a local farm, of a preacher and distiller. But at the time, all of this is going down, Dan Call, the preacher is having, he's being forced to make a decision about staying in the whiskey business when his church is telling him he's gonna go to hell if he doesn't get out of it. And his wife uh, that he decided to marry in 1856 was a teetotaler. So you've got this going on in the background and you have this 300, and at that time it was 338 acre property The home is on one portion of it, on the kind of the other end of it is the church on the same property. And then if you go in the other direction, almost like a triangle, about 25, 30 minute walking distance was the distillery. So Dan Call was keeping the two worlds separate when this young boy comes to work for him as a chore boy. So that means, you know, going out and milking the cows and and, uh, whatever, going and getting water for the family and all the, the things that chore boys do. And after a while, the young kid, according to his biography, was so inquisitive of what is going on over there in the holla. You got the smoke coming up, that you've got mules and wagons bustling back and forth over there, but nobody ever talks about it. What is going on over there? And according to Jack's biography, one day, about a, a little less than two years, since he had had moved there so somewhere around 1856 he is walked over there and introduced by the preacher to a man by saying this is uncle nearest he is the best whiskey maker I know of and he asked for nearest to teach the young boy how to make whiskey and for us that seems really really odd if a kid is 8 years old you would not be teaching him to work let alone anything else I mean we coddle kids now that's not what they were doing back then
0: that's right
1: (laughs) back then as soon as you could move you were working (laughs) like you were farming as soon as you were able bodied
0: which was was relative for the time too right because those people were living to like 35 so by the time you were 10 you were (laughs) you were like you were getting up there <laughs> <laughs> now, but, but why, exactly. why do you uh, so exactly. Uncle appears on the scene and I you've been very clear about this and I, I need to m- make this known. You know, a lot of people still could, uh, say that it was a secret, but you've been you've been clear to say, n- no, it was relatively open because, as you pointed out, it was even. He was even celebrated or at least alluded to in the book, but I, I, I've never understood. So this boy is brought over there, this eight-year-old boy to Uncle Nearest, and he's taught from him, and that's almost where the story picks up. But I wonder where Uncle Nearest learned how to be a distiller from. Where where do you think his beginnings lead him to there?
1: There's two things. One, I want to address the first point, just so it is really clear, and I, and I am very clear about this, that the story of Nearest Green actually didn't disappear until 78. It did not. When the entire time Jack was alive and ran his distillery, everybody knew who Nearest was. They knew who his boys were. The level of respect that they had when they walked through town was unparalleled. It was, if Jack was walking through town, if Nearest was walking through town, the level of respect was even. If you, even in his own biography, when it references Uncle Nearest, it also references Uncle Jack. And does so this biographer does so with the same level of respect in his biography it's a part of what brought drew me to this story and made me so interested in, and allowed me to know that it was much bigger than but the last of of jack's descendants to run his distillery Gregor motlow passed away in 1978. And sometime between seventy eight and seventy nine is when Nearest disappeared. Prior to that, if you went to Jack Daniel and you went on a tour in nineteen seventy, you heard all about Neeris Green. You heard about his boys that worked there. You knew where they lived. It was an integral part of the story prior to seventy nine. Okay, so that piece of it. In terms of uh in terms of the other question, which now I think I forgot. <laughs> Hey, <laughs> tell me again. <laughs> no.
0: Yeah, well, the, the, so we're, we're picking up the story at an uh, eight year old oh, yes, boy yes, being brought to Uncle Nearest, but you know, it, yes. the, we have yes, no idea. Yes. Keep
1: in mind that African Americans did not become Americans until December 6, 1865. Prior to that time, we were property and i i don't mean property in the sense of oh yeah you know we just didn't get paid attention to i mean literally if you look at the the local deed books i live in lynchburg now by the way and i've lived here this is i think my third my third christmas here is how is how i count it and (laughs) and
0: (laughs) i was going to bring that up too eventually i want to talk about your move there yeah
1: this the if you look in our local deed books Prior to 1865 or 1866, then you would literally see on a line that this white male deeds to this white male because it never really went to women. It was this white male to this white male, a hundred acres, uh, twenty cattle head, four negroes, three chicken. Uh, that's literally in the same line as the livestock were the African Americans, and so the idea that we'd have any idea what happened to him prior to December 6, 1865 is the equivalent of trying to track branded cattle. You just can't. I mean, he had, he, he did not exist on paper prior to the 1870 census. Didn't exist.
0: That's amazing. That's amazing that he has this gift, but it's like black people, right? To prevail through, circumstances, situations, and still come out and be some of the most innovative people and take what's meant for evil in some cases, i.e. chitlins or whatever it may be, and and turn it into something for the good. So now we have the eight-year-old boy that's brought in front of Uncle Nearest, and then the story goes that he starts to teach him how to become a distiller himself. But he's using his, his own style of distilling
1: he is well what he what he was making is what is now known as Tennessee whiskey so in in order to be considered Tennessee whiskey you must do the process that nearest taught jack without it 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 doesn't you literally cannot be categorized as Tennessee whiskey and so that process is is, is essentially taking a traditional bourbon and doing a filtration prior to it going into the barrel using charcoal from sugar maple so, sugar maple trees cut down into charcoal, and you filter through it 10, 11, 13 feet, however long you want to do it. And it's a it's a slow process. It does not add anything. So, Tennessee whiskey, by legal definition, is a straight bourbon because it doesn't add anything to it. But what it does do is it, it helps to remove the, the congeners that are naturally present in whiskey throughout the distillation process and so it removes those things which uh, in part those things that give you a headache things of that nature but it's removing that and it's creating a smoother whiskey so if you take bourbon and you take that entire process of what it takes from beginning to end you essentially add six and a half more months to their process in order to get Tennessee whiskey because from the time you chop down the tree to the time it has to dry in order to become charcoal, that's an additional six months. And then in order to take it to become a Tennessee whiskey that we have to sit in that charcoal for about another 10 to 14 days before it can go into the barrel. So it's basically bourbon just elevated is what Tennessee whiskey is and this is what Near screen was teaching Jack, but and this is where I think some people get it confused the The thing about distilling at that time, the majority of distilling by far was done by slaves was done by Africans, and the reason is it was very dirty and labor intensive if anyone if you go up to Mount Vernon, have you been to Mount Vernon to George washington's distillery okay you you see how difficult it was to make whiskey back then, right? Yeah. White men were not doing that. I have, yep. <laughs> they just weren't. It was you were, you, your your whole clothes was, was covered in soot. Your face was the color of charcoal right. by the time you right. got home. So this idea that all these white men that we have on these pedestals as being distillers were actually the one distilling is absurd. it, it just makes whatsoever. So yes, he was taught how to distill, but he very quickly sort of graduated from doing that to uh, about three years later, when the Civil War began. Uh, there was a shoot to kill on any soldiers uh, or any persons that tried to sell whiskey to the soldiers. They needed the men, so the whiskey would warm them up, right, and it would warm on these cold nights, but then they were drunk and they could not fight or really be clear minded. And so it created an issue. And so they, they issued a, a shoot to kill for anyone who tried to sell whiskey to the soldiers, but I mean, Jack, remember, never grew to be more than five foot two. So at that time, what is he even four feet, right? So you've got this kid that then shows up on the field on a regular basis to the soldiers. And they never think that he is a threat leadership because he's just a kid. But he was actually there selling nearest whiskey. And so, so this brilliant mind cornered the market during the Civil War in this wow. area that we're in. Any place where he could reach by mule and wagon with his whiskey at this super young age, he and his cousin Button Button Wagoner, they're going around and just going in. Literally selling to the soldiers, and it's it's the first time we kind of get an idea of of what type of mindset this kid had at such a young age that he's like, hey, I could corner this market <laughs> nobody else could do this, and and so we see Nearest's whiskey becoming very very popular. Now the thing to consider is Nearest Green was the master distiller for Distillery Number Seven, and so he's taking out these barrels and he's selling this whiskey from distillery number seven, and it very quickly becomes the most popular after the Civil War, uh, heading up to Nashville, down to Huntsville, Alabama, over on both sides. And even when you look at the newspaper ads from the late 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, Jack did something pretty brilliant, which was every Friday, payday, he put an ad in the newspaper. And in the newspaper selling his product, the interesting thing was all of the distillers from Kentucky would also market their whiskey, and so would the distillers from Tennessee. And everyone would put their pints on sale or their gallons or however they were selling it during each of those decades. They would be on sale every single Friday to try, try to drum up business, except for one whiskey and one whiskey only never went on sale, and it was Jack Daniels. And it was because it was the best. And, and so that is what we see in this in this story of Nearest Green having made this uh this product, but how he learned, it's hard to know. What we know though is Dan Call was of Scottish descent. So the likelihood that it would have been the way that Nearest made the whiskey would have been the way that the, the Scots made it because he would not have brought in someone who specialized in Irish whiskey. And we know that Nearest Green was uh, born in Maryland. So whiskey making was happening there way before it was happening in Tennessee, obviously, cause that existed before Tennessee. So how Nearest, if he learned there in Maryland and brought it in, or if he learned somewhere along the way in the slave trade, or if he learned once he got to Tennessee, what we know is that he was incredibly skilled before he arrived on Dan Call's farm, and we know this because he was rented. You would rent a slave if they were highly skilled, because they would cost too much to buy them. A normal price for a slave at that time was about $800. And just to give context, that at that time was about two years farmer's salary. So you're taking your salary for two years to purchase a human being for the rest of their life is, is what you believe that you're doing. And that, that $800 would go up exponentially if the slave had a special skill set. And Neris did. So he rented Nearest. He did not buy them. By all accounts, Dan Call did not own any slaves on record.
0: I want to thank today's sponsor, Bloom. Do you guys have a 401k of some kind? You're always wondering if you have the right investments, if you're picking the right thing and you're just not fully sure. Well, Bloom with three O's, B-L-O-O-O-M, does free analysis of your current employee-sponsored retirement plan. You get to understand your investments at a glance and uncover unnecessary hidden fees. Then you put them to work. You put Bloom to work with your account for $10 a month, and they'll essentially fix your 401k by optimizing your fund choices and minimizing those hidden fees. And then at that point, you just sit back and let them do what they're gonna do. Now, I found out about Bloom because of David Stein. I was listening to the podcast, Money for the Rest of Us, and he mentioned Bloom, and I just wanted to check to see if I was picking the right investments. And I wasn't that far off. There was a few tweaks, but the concept itself of Bloom is amazing. Go in today's podcast notes and check it out for yourself. Bloom, B-L-O-O-M for your 401k analysis. Let's get back to the show. You left off saying Dan called didn't known any slaves. And I wanted to get into this is all the rabbit hole stuff that you started getting into, which is amazing. but you know, I wanted to talk about your move to Lynchburg and then, you know, how you how you started getting even further. So but you pick up where you wanted to pick up from. So Dan Call didn't own any slaves. Go ahead.
1: No, he didn't. Uh, Dan Call did not own any slaves on record, although there is a a number of slaves that are recorded as to having lived there. So the only thing that we can guesstimate is that he rented them, and I I would imagine that each of them had a specific skill set, which made it necessary for them to be there. But for nearest green, he is the only one who we know of those who were there. And and the reason why we know it, and I, I always want to make sure that this does not get lost, because people give me so much credit for bringing this story forward, or shining a spotlight on it, or whatever you want to call it. And I'm very clear to make sure people understand, I am not the reason we know this story. The New York Times is not the reason we know this story. We know this story because Jack always made sure that Nearest was so well known that even following his death they could not write a biography about him without mentioning Nearest over and over and over again. And here's the interesting thing about Jack's biography. It's written by a white reporter from Tuscaloosa, Alabama height of the civil rights era and it was being written in 1965-1966. It was then published in 1967. He's interviewing all the people who know Jack best and Nearest and his boys are mentioned 50 times, five, zero, more times than Jack's own family. So that is not a he was hidden or he, you know, the recipe was stolen. I said, listen, if you steal something, you do not turn around (laughs) and give that person credit by name. You just don't.
0: Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. So, I live in the South. We still contend with Confederate statues and other things, of yes. course. But, and and there is a lot to be said for Jack Daniel's remaining by, you know, nearest green side. Even today, there's still family lineages, as, as I've heard you talk in other interviews and in other places that still work at Jack Daniel's today, which is amazing because mm-hmm. it goes to show that it's still. It's still kind of within the family, if you will. but I don't know if we would have knew it to this level that we do if it had not been for well, the the start of New York Times, and then of course, how far you've taken it. So I, I know you're you know you're being humble here, and gratefully so, but I wouldn't have I didn't read the New York Times International, and i I wish I would have because this story is amazing, but the way you've brought it to the forefront, and kind of have pulled the story out and married everything together is tremendous on your part. So you you deserve credit in that broadcasting this story out for sure.
1: Well, thank you. I I deserve minimal credit. (laughs) And I accept accept minimal credit because it doesn't matter how much of a bulldozer I am in my approach or how much of a bullhorn I might have in sharing something loudly. The reality is, is if I couldn't back it up, it it would not matter. There are plenty of people out there that are constantly telling the story about someone who is a hidden figure. And w- w- you and I have probably never heard of those people because there is nothing to actually back it up. But what Jack and his family did by making sure that they, that nearest was memorialized, if you will, I had plenty to Back it up when they did a uh, there was a local paper here that would do you know, they make those magazines uh, in some of the special edition newspapers and and they'll they'll talk about one thing specific. I know Dimes does it all the time, and so in I want to say it was 72, 72, the spring of 72, they did in a the the local paper. Did an entire story, an entire magazine on nothing but Jack Daniel Distillery and Lynchburg, Tennessee. It was 22 pages long. And they very clearly list their master distillers in order. And nearest green is number one. They called it head stillers at the time, but nearest green is number one. And so you have this, that. Jack's family made sure any place where it could be written down, it was. And I, I think that that's very, very important because I would not have been able to tell this story in this manner if that had not happened. So, I I, I definitely give a great deal of credit because that's not something that whites had to do. And I think we need to, to understand this. Right. 1967 you did not have to give an African American credit for anything. And so the idea that someone did, I think that has to not only be acknowledged, but it has to be celebrated. And I don't think we do that enough when stories like this come out. And there is someone who happened to be of the lighter race, (laughs) who up for us, right? It, it is so very rare that you hear those stories, but they existed. And I think we have to get better about acknowledging that it, they existed and that everyone, even in that time of the Caucasian race, was not bad. And and this is, it's all very nuanced. It wasn't whites were bad, blacks were good and let's call that the story and pretend that's what it was. It it wasn't. You, you had some that really did know from the very beginning that it was wrong for us to be slaves, that it was wrong for us to not have a say and not have any rights at all and to be treated as property. You had plenty of whites who understood that, who acknowledged it and worked toward equalizing it. And what I see here in Lynchburg, and the reason why I live here, don't plan on ever leaving, and and uh, is because that is a reality that they ex- they began when Nearest and Jack were walking through town together, and I when I interviewed Nearest's, grandchildren. Uh, thank God one of them was still alive when I began on this. She was 106, but she still lived by herself. And uh, yeah, she wow. passed away a couple of years later at 105. Jack's eldest descendant at the same time uh, passed away at, at about one oh was a, I think a, a just shy of her 105th birthday or had just turned 105. And so I had a lot of people here that were over the age of 80 That I was able to interview from both the African American community and uh, just the community as a whole and to be able to piece this story together. And one of the things I would ask is, listen, we're in Lynchburg. How in the world did it happen that blacks and whites were were walking and living side by side. One of the best examples that I got, and it was literally the very first day I was here and I did my first interview with one of Nearest's eldest descendants, and his wife had been a school teacher here for 40 years. And she's African American, obviously. And I asked her, I said, Hey, Miss Dodd, what happened during Integration, what was that like? And she thought about it for a second and she said, You know, nobody's ever asked me that question, but I guess it was a non issue. And you should have seen my face. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Well, what do you mean it was a non issue? I recall,
0: You're in like Lynchburg. in
1: Lynchburg, yes, Lynchburg, yes. it was a I see, yes, I recall seeing. Uh, Brown versus Board of Education and seeing the state troopers who were called in and what that scene looked like. I remember those pictures vividly. What do you mean it was a non-issue? And she said, well, I guess because the kids were already playing together before school, after school, and on the weekends, they were just excited to play together during school now. And and i wow. i literally it took me a second and my husband was with me when i did this interview and it we looked at each other and it took a second for me to even gather my thoughts for the next question and i said well let me get this straight i said what it, what exactly were the kids doing when you, when you say they played together and she pointed at a creek across the way and she said they would just play out there in the creek together like you know kids do and what came to my mind immediately was dorothy dandridge now I don't know whether or not that scene in the movie with Halle Berry actually happened, but what came to mind immediately was Dorothy Dandridge dipping her toe in a pool in Las Vegas and them draining the entire pool. And that juxtaposition with these kids down here in Lynchburg, black and white, playing in the creek together, and it was okay with their parents and and so what they had created here continued on from generation to generation so by the time I got here I will tell you why I live here now that wasn't the plan uh I came- yeah I was gonna I was
0: gonna say did the story
1: yeah. bring you down I came right. down to interview and literally Keith gave me four days to interview and we were going to get out he said babe I am going because this is what you want for your 40th birthday, but you got four days to research and we are getting the hell out of there. I mean, just the concept of a black man coming to a town with Lynch in the name, if you're not from the South, that's the last that's thing right. you want to do. And so he had right. zero interest in this 40th birthday of mine. And I mean, zero, but we, we got here. And one of the very first people we met, and it was at the library when, when we were sitting there amongst a ton of books And Nearest's, uh, not Nearest, I'm sorry, Jack's uh, eldest living descendant now walks through the door and I'll, I'll skip a whole lot of parts, but essentially she came over to us, identified who she was and said, I'd be happy to help you with your research. And so she gave me the names and numbers of Nearest Green's descendants that she had in her phone. And they they grew up together, they were friends, they ate around the same dinner table together. And so I knew immediately that the story that had gone out on social media, that had nothing to do with the, the article that Clay Risen of the New York Times wrote, what he wrote was true. What social media did with it after that was just an utter mess. And so the story became so negative But I didn't believe it because I actually took the time to read Jack's biography. And I knew that you didn't have to give a black man credit for anything at that time. So it said to me that Jack and his family wanted to make sure that Nearest was not forgotten. So I arrived here with that belief and she furthered that belief immediately. So she gives us the the names and numbers of Nearest's descendants. And then right before she's leaving the library, she says, hey, you know that book that you read where... Uh, where Jack lived, where he grew up, and where the distillery was, where Nears taught him how to make whiskey. She said, you know, uh, it's for sale. Right?
0: Destiny. Right? right. Talk about yep. destiny.
1: And so, uh, th- and this is, this is a funny transition to how we ended up making Uncle Nears premium whiskey. So she says this about the house, and uh, she draws out a, ma- a map, on a post-it note as only a southerner could do and <laughs> you're in north carolina so you get this the whole uh, yes, go yes I to did. where the red truck is and make a left go
0: <laughs> that's <the> right <laughs> now is in
1: the driveway make a right <laughs> and so she she draws out this uh, this map on a post-it note and she gives it to us keith and i try to find it we can't find the house so we come back into town where we had rented a home and I get a call on my cell phone and it is the most Southern accent to this day that I have ever heard. And it was this woman's cousin. And she said, um, my cousin tells me that you she met you in the library and you want to go see the Dan Call Farm. I can take you. I'm a realtor. So she takes us there the next day. We, My husband and I look at each other like, holy crap, this is American history we actually had the opportunity to buy it at that time it had uh it was slightly smaller it was but it was still 313 acres oh oh, so keith is
0: but keith is coming to your side of the world i see now
1: literally day day two he sees this property between her walking through the library and this he got a check in his spirit very early on that this was uh destiny Without question, because the house, the farm, everything had been on the market for 15 months. Wow. 15 months. You're talking about now at the time, of course, uh, Jack Daniel Distillery did not realize until we did a lot of research and, and brought forth all the paperwork related to it, that that distillery actually began on that property. And that distillery number seven was the distillery number. They didn't know that at the time. If they See, had, be, I'd be, be, they would have
0: bought Yes. It. These were going to be my questions. Like <laughs> I know there's positivity between you and Jack Daniels. There's no competition per se. I mean, there is, but there isn't. There's nothing but harmony there. But Jack Daniels seems like seem like they would have been so ahead of this. So that's how that's why I said destiny. Right. Because 15 months you have the property available. You're meeting people from Jack's family, who is like connected just by numbers with Uncle Near's family. It just was all just there for you. I mean. I guess there's nothing to say about it, but it's just amazing that Jack Daniels as a company wasn't ahead of some of this stuff
1: so here's this this is my belief and and i am a i am right where i belong in the bible belt because I, I, I live my life by it right yep. and so i have an enormous amount of faith and belief in things happening as they are supposed to happen and being as they are supposed to be but this is how i i tell people this when when they look at it and go you know how could jack daniels be f- be so foolish on this. And what I tell them is, is I truly believe that God blinded them because yep. if you look at their company. They are too freaking smart.
0: <laughs> yeah, right.
1: This to have been out in the open at the time that I filed the trademarks, I believe that they had like 25 plus trademark attorneys on staff
0: Right, right. None of ever
1: yeah. saw it, and and this is, I mean, their trademark attorneys are in the business of suing first, asking questions later, and they always had been, always. And so the idea that the trademarks had never been filed, that they didn't even see us file the trademarks, so they didn't find out we own the trademarks till almost uh, to six, no, longer than that, like seven, eight months later, when I told them. They had no idea, and so the only thing I can ex- I can look at it and say, "Listen, this was this story was meant to be told by the people now telling it, and everyone else was blinded."
0: Yeah, I and- I, I believe in that too. I I agree with you a hundred percent. I believe in it, biblically speaking. I I agree with you. Uh, have they yeah. ever tried to, after filing the trademark, seven months later? You're moving to Lynchburg just to get a story and now becoming a resident buying the uncle nearest estates if you will have they ever tried to get in front of it and rather than sue you purchase purchase <laughs> a part or become an investor or something along those lines
1: well this is this is what I'll say, and I never answer I never answer questions that are really on them uh, okay. but i, I, right. I will I will say this uh, we are building this for not this generation, not next generation, but for 200 years from now. Got so it, Got it. Is not an option to them got or it. to anyone else. Them investing in us is not an option. And and that has to do with just Nearest Green did not have the ability to have his own distillery. And the question becomes, if at that time, African-Americans had the ability would he have chosen to? And if he had, then he needed to stand on his own. And so we have to allow this to stand on its own. And, and as I, I've shared with, with them, uh, in, in, when we've had conversations along these lines, is that, that you have to understand how much this means to minorities, including women, because distilling began with women. But you would never know that in how the stories are told. And so you you don't really have women that have ever been credited. You do not have people of color that have ever been credited. So the idea that a uh, a big conglomerate like Brown Foreman or any other one would step in in any capacity. Remember, they are all, every single one of them, 100% white male owned. Mm-hmm. It just would kill the authenticity of the brand, and it would change th- what we are really doing, which is allowing for sort of a redo yes yeah right and and allowing for nearest green's legacy to be built on its own, but this is what I will tell you their their chief brand officer, I think put it best uh when he he came and and met with our our sales team, we did our big sales meeting. Uh, earlier a couple months ago and we did it in Louisville because I was going to be there speaking and that's where Brown Foreman who owns Jack Daniels is headquartered and and the chief brand officer came out and, and chatted with our team and and uh, I want to make sure that that relationship is always good because when Nearest was alive he and Jack had a phenomenal relationship and so what he told our team is he said listen I need you to know uh, what our position is on this he says it is our belief that Near Green all of those years ago, if he had been able to own his own distillery, that he and Jack would have traveled the world, elevating the category of Tennessee whiskey together. And that's what we're going to do. And so we are kind of side by side growing our companies. Obviously, we've got a longer (laughs) way to go than they do.
0: (laughs) But that's okay, though. You're in the game. How hard was it for you to get this up and running? So... Everything else seemed to be so seamless. You move to Lynchburg. You you connect with people at the library. You get into the States. You're you're moving along and things are humming. Trademark isn't spotted for seven months. But were there anything as you're starting the business up, particularly being a woman? I know that Keith was involved in being a minority. Were there any hangups there for you?
1: Well, the irony is, is Keith wasn't involved in the beginning. And I'll tell you how he ended okay. up getting involved. So remember, the woman who I mentioned had this deep country accent, the, the, the Jack Daniel descendant who called and said, hey, I yep. can take you up to the farm. It's for sale kind of thing. Well, as it turns out, and we later learned, because uh, she, as we, after we bought the property, I began doing research, bringing it all in. What I would do is I would share with both Nearest's and Jack's family what I discovered. And uh, as I was doing that, I think she just must have realized, you know what? This woman said she was going to come down here and tell the truth. And they knew the truth was good. And this is exactly what she's doing. She's doing it honorably for not only Nearest, but also for Jack's legacy. And so she says one day, she says, hey, listen, if you ever decide to put his name on a bottle to honor him, meaning Nearest, she says, I will come out of retirement to make sure you get it right. So this is nearest, uh, it's Jack's family, right? So this is Jack's family that's saying this. And at first I ignored it because one, I didn't know if I could trust them. And two, the idea of having to raise that much money to do a, a, a brand or a distillery or any of that nature, to me, it was just daunting. It fr- Folks think that you can just buy juice you know, from another distillery, put it in a bottle, spend a few thousand dollars and you're off and running it's absurd 99 percent of the spirit brands that come out fail the other one percent spent a whole lot of money (laughs) and so you know very quickly on in doing research that you're not raising a couple million or even 10 million or 20 million you are going way north of that in what you have to raise to really do this successfully And that to me was just daunting. I didn't have any interest in doing it whatsoever, but she brought it up several times before she finally told us who she was, which was uh, she, she brought it up by saying, listen, whiskey is in my blood. I have been in the family business my entire life. I retired and began doing real estate just to have something to do. However, prior to that, prior to my retirement, after 31 years in the family business, I was the head of whiskey operations for Jack Daniels so that is really how this began is with her saying that and the nearest his family saying listen the one thing we think that needs to happen in order to honor him is for his name to be on his own bottle. So we brought those two things together. And so we had Sherry Moore uh, is her name in the same capacity that she was for her family business as the director of whiskey operations. And so we have her, the person who I hired to oversee sales or at the time I brought her in as our VP of sales was someone who was already a VP of sales for me for another investment that I had for a few years and so she's on that that particular project and I said listen, I need to put somebody else over there, this one I need you on, this one is too important and I need to make sure the person that's on this will be able to do this with the right heart and so I brought her over to the project. So you had myself, Sherry Moore as our Director of Whiskey Operations and Kate Jerkins as our our Head of Sales. We all discovered one day when having a conversation that nothing that we needed to get done that involved other people in the industry. So that means, you know, purchasing bottles or corks or finding a bottling partner or finding a co-packer or any of those things that no one was returning our calls. And I individually, we knew we were all dealing with this issue, but it wasn't until we were all having a conversation together that we realized how prevalent it was. And, uh, so I told them, I said, Hey guys, let, let me, I want to test something out here. Uh, send every person who you've been trying to call that hasn't called you back. I want you to send their contact information to Keith. And then I called my husband and I said, babe, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to call all these people and pretend that you are the CEO of uncle with premium. Do you know priest? And this is no joke and no exaggeration that he either got through on every call or they called him back before the end of the day. And by the time he ended each of the calls, they were either trying to get together for beer, to go golf, to like, like it was a absurd thing. And so for us, I mean sherry myself kate we do not have pride in that kind of stuff where we're like listen we don't care how it gets it done (laughs) as long as it gets done we are oriented. we're not bothered in the least if he has to take time out of his busy day at sony pictures to make phone calls you know that that's where that's where we are and it was so interesting because for the longest time people in this industry thought keith was the owner and ceo which if you think about the absurdity of this, all you have to do is Google him to know he has a powerful position in Hollywood. (laughs) He does not have time (laughs) to be running a distillery. And yet it was easier for them to think that he ran it and I was the cute marketing girl than it was for them to actually respect me as being the, the founder and CEO. And, and so I think coming into this industry, it was the, the folks on the other end of the line were not used to hearing a woman. Uh, ask questions. And it, it, it's it's unfortunate. I think that because of the success of Uncle Nearest and how well this brand has done better than any uh, independent American whiskey brand in U.S. history, because of that success, I think it's going to become easier and easier for women to make the calls and actually get a response. Oh, uh, it's certainly easy for me these days. It, it's
0: <laughs> It's no doubt that you guys have seen some really good success. I mean, you guys have won I, more than 50 awards to date, as I see here, including yes. being named World's Best at Whiskey yep. Magazine 2019. So this year, which is amazing. Yep. I mean, you guys are yep. still young, talked about not being where Jack Daniels is, but these are the stepping stones. And then you guys are doing internal stuff that I think is incredible in, in terms of you guys hired the the great, great. So how, how does how does this generation go for? Victoria, she is the yeah,
1: great granddaughter of, of Nearscreen, and she is our master blender. Yes. When we named her our master blender, she became the first African American to be a master blender uh, in the world for any major brand. And you guys and got a lot of firsts
0: was... going on over there
1: listen 10 of them can you believe it 10 of them when i when i was uh, on american whiskey magazine it was the, that the owner of american whiskey is paragraph publishing and they own all of the top whiskey related magazines and have for 20 plus years when i was on that cover it was the first time ever that an african american had ever been on any of, of the covers wow. of any of their publications wow uh, when when our brand is the first you know the, the number one, when it talks about the growth of it, there has never been a brand. We, we went, we're now only, gosh, we've not even celebrated three years. My goodness. We are two and a half years in. And not only are we the most awarded new American whiskey in history with over, I think we we're at like 62, 63 awards at this point, uh, in, including everything, chairman's trophies and all of the the top awards for the most part, double golds that we can't even count. And so you have that on the award side. And then on the sales side, we went from zero states to 50 states in less than two years and closer to 18 months. And we're in 12 countries outside of the the US. We're already in 9,000, more than 9,000 locations. It's unheard of. The only spirit brand American spirit brand in, in history. And it may be in the world uh, of any world brand. I just don't have that information. The only other independent to ever pull this off was Casamigos.
0: Wow. That's amazing. I mean, listen, I, I, I and I'm not saying this for the sake of the interview, and I want to make sure the listeners hear this from me. I, I went out and bought a bottle of Uncle Nearest 1856 and I drank it, and I I think I mentioned this at the top, but I had more than I I wanted to initially. (laughs) But I took it to the cigar lounge with me here in Raleigh, North Carolina, and shared it with all the brothers who will be listening to this at the cigar lounge, and every one of them raved about it. And we got it here in September. They had already knew about it. They were already buying it, and everybody talked about how smooth and good it was. So for those listening and think that the whiskey space is noisy or whatever the case is, and you're looking for something nice, something different, particularly if you're a cigar smoker like myself, this is a great drink to have with it. And I'm not saying that because Fawn is on here. We really enjoy <laughs> it when we're out having a drink at the lounge. So, I mean, the drink is amazing, Fun. I mean, you guys, Thank the you. story is one thing. So when I got the bottle, I thought the book, so I can tell you have like this, PR business marketing background, because everything you did took careful consideration, including when we got the bottle, I wasn't expecting to see like this little book with the story on the bottle, which I thought was pretty unique in itself. Right. But everything from, you know, going to purchase the Dan call farm, which, you know, people should go to uh, nearestgreen.com to check out the, the short brand film that you guys have out as well. And also go to uncle but. I mean, er- everything is carefully packaged and wrapped, so it's not like you hastily threw out this brand, if you will, because you wanted to get ahead of the story. You can just literally see the dots connected around this that makes a really cohesive story, and then the product itself delivers. So I think it's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, thank you. I, I when people come to the distillery, the thing that they that they come to understand very very quickly on our tours is that we did not create a whiskey brand and then come up with a cool story to sell the whiskey. We are probably the only spirit brand in which the story came first. And that what we needed to do was to create a product worthy of a remarkable story. And and so we went the opposite of how this normally happens. but. And to this day, even though we are doing very well as a company from a business standpoint, from sales standpoint and and name recognition and everything else, I still do not consider us a whiskey company. Mm. That's not what we're doing. What we are doing is we are cementing a legacy. And what allows us to do that in part is a whiskey that bears his name. So we look at it, if you, if you listen to my team out in the field talk, you would think that they work for a nonprofit. The, the passion that they have in telling the story, and then they're like, oh yeah, and by the way, here's the whiskey. <laughs> because, and I tell people all the time when I, when I meet with bartenders and beverage directors and restaurant owners and liquor store owners and all the rest of that stuff, and I said, listen, I don't care if you buy a bottle. I don't care. What I do care is that you take this legacy, this story of Nearest Green, and you share it with every single person you know. That's what I care about because that's what's going to allow us to make sure that finally, for the first time, that someone who is not white male has a voice in this industry and it's not a new voice meaning it's just coming forward today meaning we've got legs in this we've got roots in this industry and for for i mean women we've we're now more than 50 percent, right of this country and we still aren't represented in this industry from a story standpoint we, we aren't very much obviously from a from a, the whiskey business side either, but just in terms of talking about us and what we did in the very beginning of this and so so we've got something an entire industry that is lacking both color and uh, more than half of the gender population <laughs> and and i I tell people when I, I you know I'll go and I'll speak at different diversity things and with tech industry or finance industry and, and, uh, you know, everyone has their complaints and I'll go in there and I said, listen, here is your reality check. You think you live in, or you work in the space that is the least diverse. I assure you, I've got you (laughs) beat. Without question, I have you beat. And, uh, so yeah, no, we, uncle nearest has become the voice to represent women and people of color in the spirits industry. And here's the beautiful thing about it is even though that is the case, you have men who like yourself, who have come along on this journey and said, Hey, we're going to celebrate you guys with this as well. And so it is the reality is as a whiskey could not grow and exist if it were not for that other 50% of the population. Could not exist because that is the population that drinks whiskey the most. Right Now we're growing women and people of color, we're adding by huge numbers and growing whiskey here in America, which is why it continues to be uh, growing at the pace that it's growing at, especially when it comes to premium. But we still are not the majority overall when you look at that. And so I I think it is remarkable that this is probably the only brand that you will see on shelves in which everyone, every demo has come to the table. I don't care if they're a great-grandfather or if they're a millennial, they are at the table and they're drinking Uncle Nears Premium Whiskey and I think it's remarkable.
0: I I think that's amazing. I, I promise you next year in the new year, you have my word that my wife and I will come down. We'll do the VIP tour with you guys. I see that. you. Have. Nice. I went to your site. I see the different tours you have. We are going to absolutely do that. We support it as a brand. I support it as a drink, as I said, and I mean that wholeheartedly. And some that listen to this know I'm telling the truth. And I, I think this is an important story to support. I think your business is trailblazing in a lot of different ways. You know one one question I do have, Fawn, before we go, is why Uncle? Where does Uncle come from?
1: Yeah, well, uh, here in Lynchburg, that it was the level of that 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 signified respect, and so Jack here was referred to as Uncle Jack. So there actually was an Uncle Jack label. Here, really, they don't utilize it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, uh, one of his whiskey, he had tons of different whiskey labels. <laughs> one of them was, was Uncle Jack and uh, and it's a great bottle. So hopefully they'll put it back out one day and Uncle Nearest and Uncle Jack can live side by side. That that would make me very happy. But it was a sign of respect here. And it, it, more importantly, we, we literally, from a branding standpoint, our entire team before when we were beginning this process, we looked at different labels and we looked at it originally with Nearest Green on it and it made no sense. And the reason is, is we've now identified him as a human being. People see Nearest Green, they know it's a person now. But if you think about it, when we first came out in 2017, if people did not know he was a person, it looks like the Nearest Golf Course. Why is Nearest Green on a label? It looks like we ran out of When we filed for our distillery license, the chairman actually laughed, and I thought he was laughing because he must live nearby, and he was commenting to one of his colleagues on the panel saying, oh yeah, I, I can't believe I didn't even know this was near my house. That's what I assumed. And when I walked up to him afterward, I said, hey, you live near Shelbyville? And he says, no. And I said, oh, but you laughed when you saw our application. And he says, oh, I just told her they must have run out of names. And, 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 right? and so if you don't, even now, if you don't know the story, then Nearest Green is literally like the closest golf course. And by putting Uncle in front of it, we made him a person out the right. game. Uh, that said, that is what people called him, not only those who were around him, but his children and his everyone called him uncle neris there was an entire lineage of greens here who were not related at all i had to break the bad news to them and they were not happy with me because single one of Nearest Green's descendants, we pay for them to go through college. And so I'd say, no, no matter if it's your bachelor's, your master's, your PhD, if you are in college right now, we're paying for it. And so you had all these greens that were submitting for our Nearest Green legacy scholarship. And one of the requirements is you have to upload a your family tree and you have to be able to trace it back to Nearest. And none of them could trace it back to Nearest. And I, I had to go to them and say, guys, I i'm really sorry, but you're actually not related. Like, what do you mean? He he was my grand my great-grandmother's uncle nearest. I said, no, he was everyone's <laughs> uncle nearest. You are literally not blood. You're not related at all. He was everyone's uncle. And so it, it really was, we had to battle that internally. I had investors who were not, who just were completely opposed to utilizing uncle because of the negative connotation when it comes to slaves and things of that nature. I said, listen, this is what people called him who respected him. So we will tell that story out there and I trust in my team's ability to share that story and counter any negativity that might come from it. Uh, As it turns out, we had a few questions in the beginning and never again. So it didn't really matter. However, if you look at the, which it sounds like you're just on our distillery website. If you look at the name of the distillery, it is not Uncle Nearest. It is Nearest green and the reason is is because we've now identified him as a human being and so we're now able to in transitioning the brand uh in over the next three or four years we will begin slowly but surely transitioning the brand to nearest green so because you we can do that
0: did it feel did it feel like listen i you know so I'm a biracial male. I get it, black dad, black but black family. to whole bit. I get the uncle. What's up, uncle, Auntie, even if they're not <laughs> necessarily, you know, that's part of it that comes yeah. culturally, yeah. you know, over generations. So I, I totally get it. But um, are you moving away from uncle nearest because it felt Aunt Jemima like you didn't want to have that that um. I don't know. You you're just giving the a human yeah the felt, connotation felt, no, no, okay okay no, you just was, want to make sure always, that there's humanity attached to it.
1: Yeah, 100% from day 1. We always plan to transition the brand in in within the first decade to Nearest Green, but we needed to identify him as a human being first. And and the reason is, is because again, if we're pressing reset and we're giving Nearest the opportunity now for his legacy, for him to basically you know own his own distillery and build his legacy, he would not have named it Uncle Nearest. That's what people called him. That is not what he called himself. That's good so if it were his own which is what how we are treating this then it would have been nearest green distillery and that's why that's the name of it
0: well fun i listen i you know this has meant so much and been worth the wait for me to talk with you because again i'm a fan of the brand i'm a fan of the story but i'm a fan of you as the storyteller and It's meant a lot to have this conversation to talk about legacy because legacy is important to me. I have kids and, you know, I always want to know how my story is told or make sure that I'm, I'm trying to shape it correctly. Right. And you being able to step in and do that for someone that didn't necessarily have a voice or take that story and carry it on. Is uh, special that that takes a special human being to do that. So for those those readers of of the story, people that listen to you tell the story both on this podcast and other places, at the end of it all, in short, what do you want them to walk away with? What what do you want them to hear from all of this?
1: That it's more than whiskey. Everything that we're doing is about so much more than whiskey. We have never in America. We have no other brands that date back to pre-Civil War, post-Civil War, immediately after that, anywhere in that period of time where African-Americans, we can say we were there. We can say that we were an intricate part of, an integral part of what happened from the beginning. No other brand. If you think about any other brand in America that is more than 100 years old, we don't have that. This is the very first time that because we were not allowed to patent, we were not allowed to trademark, we were not allowed to actually own anything. And so this is the first time that we're able to look at something and say, our brilliance helped that. Our strength helped that. And, and so one of the things that I say, and I guess we can end with this, is, is if you look at all of our, our branding, our website, things like that, we do not say drink responsibly. We say drink honorably. And, and the reason why we do that is drink responsibly just means don't drink and drive don't drink and curse somebody out don't drink and you know hit someone that's drink responsibly right? Just drink to your own limit, drink honorably means make your ancestors proud while you're sipping on this. Make your children proud while you're sharing this this story with them over a glass of whiskey. This is an American story, and we don't have many from that time where both whites and blacks, women and men, we can all rally around it and say, this is one of the good ones. This is the best that America has to offer is what we see in this story. And so that's what I want people to do is to continue sharing it, to dive into it, to to go into a rabbit hole like I did on this and, uh, and come out on the other side of it knowing that America is better than what we may be hearing in the press today. And uh, we're stronger than that. And we're smarter than that and we have already figured out how to get this right once so let's just do it again
0: that's really good Fawn. thank you so much for your time i appreciate it
1: thank you priest i appreciate you
0: thank you hey hope you guys got something out of today's interview it was so exciting and exhilarating for me to talk to to fawn she's she's such a firecracker for business you can see why she's successful you can see why people are sitting up and paying attention to this story fun is a part of a lot of different things but this is just one aspect of something that she's gotten into that has caused her to sit up and take attention to it and dive in and i was excited to talk to her i was inspired by it and uh, hopefully you were as well even if you're not into alcohol if you will maybe it inspires you to be the first on whatever it is that you want to do or create a path to cut a path, cut a legacy for something that you may be involved in that others that may seem to be untapped. So until next Sunday, when we have another special guest, I look forward to talking to you soon. Have a great week. I'm the best ever, my style is impetuous, my defense is impregnable, and I'm just
1: ferocious.